0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great fellowship. And Lord, the men in particular of our church we just want to lift up. We're so thankful for those that were able to attend a retreat... Um, We pray they would come back strengthened, invigorated, with a, a greater desire for honesty, sincerity, integrity. And Father, along those lines, we pray for every one of us gathered here today, Lord. We're your people. We have retreated here this morning. We also want to hear from you. We want direction from you. Some of us, Lord, have read this book for many, many years. You want to show us some fresh things and remind us of some things perhaps that we have walked away from or lost. So, Lord, would you meet us here? In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid... I was often eavesdropping on my brothers and my parents. I was the youngest of four boys. I wanted to find out what they really talked about. So I would like stop short in the hallway, short of their door, and just sort of listen into the conversations. Very revealing. And uh, sometimes pick up the phone to hear the conversations going on. Now, you're not surprised at that. Kids do that. You did that. But when I was first married... I, I would also eavesdrop on my wife's quiet times. I, I did that because they really weren't quiet. She would often sing to the Lord, and I would hear this voice across our apartment, and there she was, and I'd peek in, and her eyes were closed, but she was singing a song to the Lord. and It was inspiring to eavesdrop on that kind of intimate communication. By the way, you don't have to worry. I'm not running around town eavesdropping on all of y'all. Though I have been accused of that by some paranoid folks, I don't do that. But sometimes it is wonderful to eavesdrop, especially on the prayers of a child, and to read children's prayers. A seven-year-old girl by the name of Debbie prayed, Dear God, could you send a new baby for mommy? The new baby you sent last week cries way too much. Precious, right? Eight-year-old Angela said, Dear God, would you give my brother some brains? So far he doesn't have any. Pure honesty. Seven-year-old David said, God, I I could use a little raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my dad? And then there was the kid who got his prayers and his poetry mixed up. And he started by saying, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> you know, the cadence of the poem and the prayer are identical. Easy to get them mixed up. Today we're going to eavesdrop, and for the next few weeks, on a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed by the greatest person who ever lived. This is the Mount Everest of all prayers. In John 17, I feel like we're standing on holy ground. It's as if the veil is pulled back and we gaze into the very heart of God. I've always been impressed with John 17. I wrote a book on it a few years ago called When God Prays. So we're sort of treating this as like a mini series within the greater series of the gospel of John, believe 8, 7, 9. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say to you, this chapter is so meaningful and so rich, I could spend a year preaching on just John 17. I know, you're thinking, we know, we know. <laughs> but I won't do that, but we'll be here for a few weeks. And it is, it is the, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. I'm sure he prayed longer prayers. We're told in one occasion he prayed all night With his father. All night in prayer with his father. But this is the longest recorded prayer that we have. 632 words. 26 verses. I'm going to share with you today just one verse. Principally. Verse 1. Let's begin then in John 17, verse 1. And we'll read just a few verses together for the sake of context. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes, and said... I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. Now, Something about this prayer you should know. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer. typically we call our Father who art in heaven, we call that the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. I never call that the Lord's Prayer. To me, that's the disciples' prayer. That's what he taught his disciples to pray. This is the Lord's own prayer to his Father. In fact, I would say that the other one, the disciples' prayer, it's so much for us that Jesus himself could never really pray that in all honesty. He couldn't say, forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. It is for disciples. This is the Lord's own personal communication to His Father. And here's what's important to note. And here's why studying this makes it so important. These are requests, issues, prayers that Jesus makes to His Father just hours before His death. So what would be most important in Jesus' own mind to pray about before He dies? If you had 3 hours to live, what would you pray for? Besides, get me out of this! If you knew you were going to die, what kind of things would rise to the surface in your heart as being really essential things to talk to God about? And so we have here the prayer priorities of Jesus, the things He talks to His Father about before His own death. Now. I said we're going to cover verse 1, and we principally want to look at that, though a few other verses. I just want to show you why this prayer is so important, why it is so unique, and some characteristics of it. What is first and foremost noteworthy, as we're eavesdropping, is the person who spoke this prayer. It's Jesus. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. Now, I'll explain in a minute. These words refer to all the words he just spoke. Jesus spoke these words, comma, lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, and now the rest of it is in red letters. This is what Jesus said, spoke to his father. So what strikes us is that not only are we hearing a prayer, but that Jesus is praying. Why does Jesus need to pray? I mean, if everything we know about Jesus from the Scripture is true, that He is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father, the one who forgave sins while He was on the earth, the one who healed people's diseases, the one who claimed to be omniscient, why does He need to pray? He's equal with God. In fact, that's even revealed in this prayer. Notice that Jesus prays in verse 1 glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. There's an equality that is shared. In verse 2, as you have given Him authority over all flesh. Well, that's quite a statement. See, you and I could never pray this prayer. You have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Now watch this. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See the equality that's in those verses? Look down at verse 10. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Anyone else who dared use that language in their prayers would be a nutcase, a megalomaniac. This doesn't work with any other person. Besides Jesus. And Paul even said, Jesus, who was in very nature God. In very nature God. So, so, why does God need to pray? In fact, this is not the only time. No less than 19 times in four Gospels we find Jesus praying. Once all night in prayer to the Father. On another occasion, he got up very early in the morning before the day and prayed. On another occasion, when they tried to make him a king by force, he stole away from the crowd, got alone with his father. When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. He even said to his apostles, What? You couldn't even pray with me one hour? Have you ever tried to pray one hour by yourself? So Jesus prayed. Why? let me just give you a spoonful of theology for a moment. Jesus had two natures. He was man, but he was God. Or you could say he was God, but he was man. He was theanthropic. That's the term, theanthropic. It comes from two words put together. Theos, God, anthropos, man. He was theanthropos. He was the God man. He wasn't just a good man. He was the God man. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. What that means is that for 33 years, Jesus subjugated himself obediently to the Father's will while on the earth. Humbly obedient to the Father for 33 years. Dependent upon the Father for 33 years. That was not the case before the incarnation. That was not the case after the incarnation. But for 33 years, that was the case. And so Paul, in writing of Jesus, said he was in very nature God, but he humbled himself and became, remember the next word? Obedient. He became obedient. So here is Jesus being obedient, humbly dependent upon the Father. Fully God, but fully man, and as a man, fully dependent upon God. Did you know that the first heresy in the church was not denying the deity of Christ, but the humanity of Christ? It's called Gnosticism. We evangelicals make a huge deal, and rightfully so, about the deity of Christ, that Jesus was God, is God. But where we're weak, perhaps, is identifying him fully as a man. I'm going to read something to you that will make you feel a little uncomfortable. It was written by Max Lucado. It was designed by him to make us feel a little uncomfortable. This is what he writes. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything that you and I ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He got colds, he burped. His feelings got hurt, his feet got tired, his head ached. Now to think of Jesus Christ in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do, it's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean up the manure from around the manger, Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him just divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world. For only when we let him in can he pull us out. I think that's so good. Only when we let him in as fully God but fully human, knowing what we deal with and struggle with, can he lift us out. Now there's a greater point to be made here. If Jesus Christ, the theanthropic Son of God, felt the need to depend upon His Father so regularly and so much, where does that leave us, we, in all of our weaknesses? Should we depend any less? No, certainly much more. He's theanthropic. You and I are just anthropic. We're just men and women. And we totally need God. And so what an example. The person who spoke this prayer was Jesus, an example to us. The second remarkable characteristic is, of course, the power that resulted from this prayer. Now, knowing what I know about Jesus and knowing what you know about Jesus, we would be very interested to find out what he prayed for because, because if Jesus prayed it, you can be sure it's going to be what? Answered. It's going to be answered. Answered. If Jesus is going to pray a prayer, you know it's going to be the perfect prayer because Jesus was never out of sync with his Father's will. He would always ask for, pray for exactly what was in the mind of the Father. They were always in sync together. So here's Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, God incarnate, never asking anything apart from the Father's will. Going to be done. Listen to this. You remember this, I'll refresh your memory. In chapter 11, we already read it, Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus. He's about to raise him from the dead. Jesus prayed out loud in front of the crowd and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now listen to this. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So if the Father always hears the prayers of the Son, and it's always the perfect prayer, then what did Jesus pray for? That would be interesting to find out. Well, let me give it to you. And here's the outline of chapter 17. Jesus prays for three things generally. He prays in verses 1 through 5 for himself. He prays in verses 6 through 19 for his 11 apostles. And then he prays in verse 20 through 26, this is the best part in my view, he prays for you and me. Did you know that you were prayed for in this prayer? Beginning in that verse, verse 20, he says, Not only do I pray for all these, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. He prays for us, who will receive the testimony of these apostles. So Jesus prays for himself, he prays for the eleven apostles, and he prays for all of those, including us, through history, who will believe in Jesus through their testimony. Well, what does he pray for specifically? That's generally... Let me quickly give you five specific things, a preview of coming attractions, if you will. He prays, number one, for their security. Look at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. What is he praying for? Their spiritual preservation. That none of these eleven would fall away. One already has named Judas. Right? He jumped ship. He was a defector, a detractor. So he prays now for his eleven that none of them would be lost. That they would all be kept. Did God answer his prayer? Yes, he did. Every single one of those men lived out a faithful testimony for the Lord's glory. We have that by history. Number two, he prays for their safety. In verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He's praying against satanic attack. Help them overcome temptation. Third, he prays for their sanctity. Verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's a Bible word for clean them up, God. Make them holy. Let them be cleaned up, By the principles in the book, the truth, the word of God. Sanctify them by that. Fourth, he prays for their unity, verse 21, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So he prays for a harmonious love relationship between all members of the body of Christ. Verse 5, he prays for, or verse 24, he prays, For their eternity. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So now he's praying that the apostles and everybody else, including you and I, all those through history who will believe, will one day stand together beholding the glory of the Father and the Son in eternity. Now, in going through this little list, something came to my mind, I want to share it with you. Here's a suggestion. If you want your prayers answered, and if I want my prayers answered, I would suggest that you pray along these lines of some of these specifics. Because this forms for us the will of God according to Christ for us who follow Him in these five areas. You want to see prayer's answer, pray along these lines. You've heard it before. The purpose of prayer is not to get your will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Here's God's will. Pray for that. Francis of Assisi was the one who said, I always want what God wants, and that's why I'm so happy. Great motto to live by. So Jesus was a man of prayer. Oh, by the way... Did you know that Jesus still is a man of prayer? The Bible says in Romans 8 and in Hebrews chapter 7 that he is at the right hand of the throne of God making, you know it, making intercession for us. In fact, one of the writers says he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying for us. This is his mediatorial work. This is part of the unfinished work of Christ. The finished work is his death, the atonement, but he's still working, he's still praying. Now, we would not know what that ministry is like unless we had chapter 17 of John. We would know when it says he's making intercession for his saints. We go, huh? What does that mean? So now we have a little peek into what that means by looking at John chapter 17 as he makes intercession for us. By the way, how does that make you feel when you hear that Jesus... Is praying for you. A couple years back, people from this fellowship gave me one of the greatest gifts I ever received. It was a Christmas card. Inside the Christmas card was a piece of paper with 52 lines representing 52 weeks of the upcoming year. And on each line were several names of people signed. And they were saying, these are the people that are committed to pray for you that week during the next year. So you are covered faster in prayer for the next 52 weeks. Okay, wow, I thought. I can't go wrong. That made me feel so good. Jesus is praying for me. How does that make you feel? I mean, people, that's cool. Jesus, wow. Maybe here's a better example. A few years back, uh, I was asked to go. didn't have to pull my leg on this one. Franklin Graham invited me to his parents' home. Dr. Billy and Ruth Graham's house for lunch. That night I was to speak at the Billy Graham Training Center. Uh, He said, Come over to Daddy's house, he said, for lunch. His mother had Chinese food prepared. We had a nice time of fellowship. And before the meal, Dr. Billy Graham prayed. And he prayed for the meal and he prayed for me. And he was praying that God would give me wisdom. I'll pray for Skip. That you give him wisdom and insight and prayed for this session that I And as this is happening, I'm going, I'm like pinching myself going, Billy Graham is praying for moi? I thought, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say tonight. I mean, God's going to answer that prayer, right? It's Billy praying. He's got like a close, intimate connection. Okay, now take that example and hear this again. Jesus Christ is ever lives to make intercession for you. Now, if you're thinking, why does Jesus need to pray for me? Really? You have to ask that? (laughs) We need all the help we can get, right? Besides that, the Bible says we have an accuser of the brethren who day and night is accusing us before God. Satan has a lot of dirt on us. Jesus is our defense attorney. He prays for us. Let's third look at the posture that accompanied it. I think you're going to enjoy this. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. Now again, whenever you read the Bible, you have to put yourself in the sandals of those who were there. And uh, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Um, the disciples have had Jesus, for four chapters, give them a long message. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 were words Jesus spoke to them. Two of those chapters were in the upper room at Passover. Two of the chapters were walking in route to toward the Kidron Valley. But they were words spoken to them. Jesus made eye contact with them, spoke to them. Then suddenly, his last thing that he said was, Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And then he did this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. It says Jesus lifted his eyes. That was his posture. When he prayed, he lifted his eyes. didn't say he folded his hands and closed his eyes. He lifted his eyes. That's a Jewish posture of prayer. It's acknowledging God's throne is in heaven. Psalm 123, I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. But it brings up an issue I wanted to touch on. What is the right posture for prayer? Is there a correct posture for prayer? Well, I was taught in the church I was raised in, the correct posture for prayer was kneeling. And we had in our church these hardwood kneelers that I swore were invented by medieval torture artists. So I thought, yeah, God, when we pray, he wants us to hurt. So you've got to be on your knees. Ouch! Oh, ouch! Well, that's the right posture for prayer. Reminds me of the three pastors that were talking about the right posture for prayer. And one of them said, The secret is in the hands. It's all in the fingers. You want them pointed upward like this. Together, in front of you, fingers pointed upward because that's where God is second pastor said, no, that's too easy. God wants you on your knees. That's a sign of humility. The third pastor, not to be outdone by the other two, said, no, the correct posture for prayer is flat on your face before the Lord. That's true humility. Well, in the background, while they were having a conversation, was a telephone repairman who couldn't hold any longer in. He said, gentlemen... I've discovered the most powerful prayer I ever prayed is when I was dangling 40 feet off the ground upside down by my heels off a telephone pole. (laughs) So I suppose the best posture for prayer is whatever gets you to pray. So what do we find in the Bible when it comes to posture? Well, listen to this. We find Abraham in Genesis 18 who stood before the Lord in prayer. In Second Chronicles 20, we find King Jehoshaphat who bowed with his face toward the ground, Second Chronicles chapter 20. In Daniel chapter 6, we find Daniel who knelt on his knees toward Jerusalem with his windows open toward that city. We find in First Kings chapter 8, Solomon standing with his arms, it says, hands spread outward toward the Lord when he dedicated the temple. In Ezra chapter 9, we find Ezra who knelt on his knees with his hands spreading toward the Lord. Here's what's interesting. Never once do we find in the Bible a description of someone praying where it says, and they closed their eyes and folded their hands. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying it's not okay to do it. I'm just saying it didn't make God's top five So the Bible never says they did that. So what do we do? Fold our hands and close our eyes. It's like we're really good at what the Bible doesn't say to do. Now I know, I know, we teach our kids that because we don't want them to poke each other and fidget and look around and get distracted We say, Johnny, close your eyes, fold your hands. But can I just advocate, can I just maybe plead that we incorporate some biblical postures, that we raise our horizons a little bit And incorporate some biblical postures when we pray. Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven and spoke to the Father. Not only did he lift his eyes, he lifted his voice. He prayed out loud. He prayed out loud. Skip, how do you know that? Because it's written down, that's why. Somebody had to hear it. John recorded what was said. It was prayed out loud. He lifted his eyes, he lifted his voice, and he prayed out loud. I think it's good to pray out loud. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just here. Jesus was giving an example to His disciples, but surely when He was alone with His Father, He never prayed out loud. How do you know? How do you know that? In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus will leave His disciples, walk away from them, He'll pray to His Father, And the disciples will overhear it, even though he's not talking to them or for them. He's alone with his father. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. They heard that because they wrote that down. I do think when you pray, it's best to pray out loud. Of course, you can pray inwardly in your heart. You can always do that. But here's why I like to pray out loud. I get distracted so easily. When I just like start thinking my prayers, and I'm telling you, it happens every time. I just, t- to stay on focus is hard. I'm like, how did I get there? I'm, I'm, I'm not even praying. I'm thinking about something or doing something or planning something. So just like when I talk to you and I use my voice, I don't just think my communication to you. I wouldn't go. I I, don't, I will use my words. I would advocate to... Pray out loud. Use your words to the Lord. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your voice. Let's close this out and look at the the last, the final characteristic of this prayer. And that is the purpose that directed it. Okay, here we are eavesdropping on Jesus praying. We're listening to his words. We're watching what he does. And as we are eavesdropping, something amazing strikes us. That in his prayer, he prays for himself, the least of all. 26 verses, only five of them, he's talking about himself. He's praying about himself. And it's all in relationship to his father. The rest of the prayer is about other people. Now, he's facing death. He's facing, facing torture. He knows it. He predicted it. He's praying for others. But... The underlying, undergirding theme of the entire prayer is what I want to drive at and close with. He's praying for the glory of God. His goal is the glory of God. He's aiming at the glory of God. Eight times in this prayer, glory or glorify is mentioned. Doxa is the Greek word. It means to... Have a good opinion of something or someone else. It means to make someone renown. Make someone renown. Make others have a good opinion of somebody else. So look at verse 4. I have glorified you. That's his goal while on the earth. I have glorified you. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to these men that were chosen out of the world. In other words, Father, my whole life, my whole existence has been to point to and focus on You. I've made You and pleasing You my aim and I pass that on as a goal for them to please You. So look what he says. Look what he begins with. Father, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son May glorify you, what hour the hour, the hour planned and thought about from eternity past, we finally arrived, Father, at this hour. Have you noticed how in the Gospel of John he always talks about the hour, right? remember in the in chapter two, the wedding feast at Cana, when his mom said, "Hey, you know it's an opportunity right here to do something." He said, woman, my hour has not yet come. When he was in Jerusalem, they tried to arrest him, and it said they could not because his hour had not yet come. When he finally arrives in Jerusalem publicly in John chapter 12, he announces the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now he stands there, lifts up his eyes, he goes, Father, here we are. That hour is now. He's speaking about the cross. He's speaking about the culmination, the pinnacle of all history. When Satan's power could be destroyed, when salvation could be dispersed to all who would believe. The glory hour. The hour has come. I've glorified you on the earth. I've manifested your name on the earth. Now the hour has come. I want to glorify you. We'll look more at that next time, but What we've discovered today is that if you want to get a good idea of how to talk to God, just eavesdrop on Jesus talking to God. And you'll discover that Jesus has an an aim, a goal, that He wants us to have, and that is to please God, to please and glorify the Father. I would say, this is my opinion, that many, if not most, Christians live their whole lives without that being their aim, their goal. I don't know if it's just who we are, if it's just the sinful nature of our flesh, but it's almost as if we're saved now. You owe me something, God. I'm your child now. I want health and prosperity and blessing all the time, rather than the other way around. I exist. To please God. I live and breathe and move. For his glory. Do you know what the anthem of heaven will be? It's recorded for you. In Revelation 4.11. Heaven says. For you created everything. And it is for your pleasure. That they exist. And were created. That's why I'm here. To please God. Well Jesus prayed that your life would be secure and that you would be in heaven with him. Is your life secure this morning? If you died today, this week, would you be in heaven? Are you in Christ? If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? I wonder what you'd say. I wonder if you'd say, well, you should let me into heaven because... I tried to be a really good guy. I worked hard. I was sincere. I went to church every now and then. I wonder if you'd point to your own works, your own goodness, your own righteousness. Or, I wonder if you'd be like the college student. Let me tell you his story. He was in a class in college, a logic course. I don't know if you've ever taken a logic class in college, but it can be daunting. This professor was known for having extremely difficult tests. So the day before the test, the professor said, class, tomorrow is our big test, and you are allowed to bring as much information into the classroom as can fit on a single sheet of notebook paper. So most of the students, you can guess what they did, they tore out an eight and a half by 11, and at home they wrote tiny little sentences of facts, on both sides of the page so they'd have that cheat sheet because that was the instruction, as much information as you can put on a single sheet of paper, except for one student. One student walked in the next day for the test, sat down at his desk, placed an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in front of his desk, gave a signal. He had hired an advanced logic student to come in and stand on that sheet of paper (laughs) in front of his desk because he said as much information as you can put on a single sheet of paper. So he put an advanced logic student on the single sheet of paper, and he told them all the answers. He's the only student who got a straight A in the class. That's logic. That's brilliant. So I hope your answer wouldn't be, that's because I was a good person, I tried really hard, and I worked hard, and I was religious as much as... Because someone stood in my place and took the test for me and His name was Jesus. And by letting Him take my sin and me believing in Him, it brings you glory. I hope you are letting God be glorified in your life by entering into a relationship with His Son. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You. Let's stand and pray. In fact, you don't have to close your eyes. You can raise your hands. You can open them up. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we just simply ask that your goal for our lives would be our goal for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.